From 1934 to 1963, one prison stood out from all others as the last place you'd ever want to be sent. Alcatraz Maximum Security Penitentiary was and still is the most infamous prison in American history. Maximum security meant inmate activity was regulated much more strictly than at a normal prison. The geography of the island surrounding the prison facility was rocky, treacherous, and difficult to navigate. Most importantly, Alcatraz was surrounded on all sides by the waters of the San Francisco Bay. The temperature of the water surrounding the island is, on average, below 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That, plus the strong currents, meant that any escape attempt was more likely to end in hypothermia and drowning than freedom. The federal government claims that no one escaped Alcatraz alive. The one stain on this near-perfect record concerns an escape attempt made on June 11, 1962. Three men, Frank Morris, Clarence Anglin, and Clarence's brother, John Anglin, executed a plot months in the making in an effort to get off the island. They were never captured. Officially, they are presumed to have drowned and been washed out into the Pacific Ocean. But their bodies were never recovered. Without a body, no one, not even federal law enforcement, can be sure that the three men didn't successfully escape. And that's why Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers are among the most famous prison escapees in U.S. law enforcement history. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps the podcast. This episode, we're looking into the 1962 escape attempt from Alcatraz. To be clear, if any of the three men who disappeared on the night of June 11th lived through the escape, they would be the only people to have ever successfully escaped from Alcatraz prison. The story of Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin remains one of the most fascinating unsolved cases in American history. This is both due to the complex plan and the fact that, with no confirmed bodies, we still don't know what happened to any of them. The story was published in J. Campbell Bruce's 1963 nonfiction book, Escape from Alcatraz, which was later adapted into the classic film of the same name, starring Clint Eastwood as a dramatized version of Frank Morris. It's over a mile of swim to land. The currents make it seem like 10. The water's so cold, it will numb your arms in a matter of minutes. In the past few years, interest in the case has resurged with the 50th anniversary of the escape in 2012. Even now, decades later, people are still wondering, where are Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers? 
As you've probably already guessed, this is a mystery with two possible outcomes. The first, and most commonly accepted, is that all three escapees perished in the attempt to reach the shore, and whatever remains of them is lost somewhere beneath the waters of the San Francisco Bay. The second possibility is that one or more of the trio survived the escape and managed to live out the rest of their lives in hiding. Perhaps they're still alive, even today. In order to understand which of these is the more likely outcome, we first need to understand the men who are the heroes, or perhaps the villains, of this story. Frank Morris is generally regarded as the mastermind of the escape. Having Clint Eastwood play you in a movie will help your reputation like that. Born in 1926, Morris spent a large portion of his youth in foster homes before spending most of his known adult life in various prisons. He was orphaned when he was 11, and his earliest recorded conviction occurred when he was only 13. He was sent to National Training School for Boys and spent the remainder of his childhood in various juvenile detention facilities. By the time he reached his 20th birthday, Morris's rap sheet included armed robbery, burglary, and narcotics possession. After serving time for various crimes in the state penitentiaries of Georgia and Florida, Frank was sentenced to 10 years in Louisiana State Prison in 1952. He was only 25 at the time. Allegedly, Frank Morris had an IQ of 133, which would put him just below genius classification. During his incarceration in Louisiana, he put his intellect to work, devising escape plan after escape plan. Around 1959, one of those plans worked. Frank escaped, but was captured a year later. By this point, Frank's criminal history and proven ability to escape warranted him a spot in the country's most famous prison. Alcatraz was considered the last resort prison for troublesome inmates. If a criminal was too violent for a normal facility to handle, or if they repeatedly attempted breakouts, they were sent to Alcatraz. Frank arrived in 1960, and despite the intimidating geography of the fortress, he immediately started planning his escape. Alcatraz was on a different level than the state prisons Frank had gotten himself out of before. The entire design of the prison was based around keeping inmates in. From the time it was opened as a federal penitentiary in 1934, the government made it clear that Alcatraz was constructed to be inescapable. Four strategically placed guard towers provided unobstructed views of most of the island. Security guards undertook rigorous inspection tactics. They'd check on the integrity of the cell bars and walls numerous times a day. On any given day, the prisoners would be forced to line up for a headcount 13 times to make sure no one was missing. Lunches were kept to less than half an hour long, and all silverware was very closely monitored to ensure no one tried to smuggle a spoon back to their cell. Even if they did, metal detectors were stationed at the entrance to the dining hall. The recreation yard, the only part of the prison that allowed inmates to go outside, was surrounded by a 25-foot barbed wire fence. The thing that any would-be escapee had to consider was this. Even if they managed to get out of their monitored cells, past the guard towers, over the massive barbed wire fence, and cleared the treacherous rocky shore, 
they were still on an island surrounded by frigid, choppy water. The swim from Alcatraz to the nearby land masses isn't a matter of distance. A relatively fit man should have minimal trouble swimming a distance of less than two miles. It's the environmental factors that make water so treacherous. The ocean waters surrounding Alcatraz Island are, on average, at a temperature of below 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Water that cold has an adverse effect on the human body. Lower temperatures cause the body to expend more heat to keep itself warm. This takes up energy and can quickly lead to fatigue if you're also trying to swim. The strong winds and currents that are common to the San Francisco Bay are another factor. At low tide especially, the current surrounding Alcatraz Island tends to push in the direction of the ocean. That means if you're swimming from Alcatraz to Angel Island, you're not just fighting the cold. You're fighting the direction of the water itself. As Frank Morris surveyed the complicated geography of his new home in 1960, he realized he wouldn't be able to escape on his own. Enter the Anglin brothers. John Anglin, born in 1930, and his brother Clarence, born in 1931, came from a farming family. They grew up in Georgia and had 11 siblings. The Anglins were seasonal farmers and they would travel across the eastern U.S. seeking reliable work. We don't know much about John and Clarence's childhood, but we do know that they were inseparable from a young age. They were also known to be troublemakers. As two young men from a poor family with little supervision, John and Clarence started getting into trouble in their mid-teens. Petty theft and breaking and entering went to burglary and robbery when the boys were older. They started robbing banks in their late teens. The Anglins, like Frank Morris, were burglars and bank robbers. They were not murderers and reportedly never used a weapon once during their years as robbers. The one time they had to use a firearm, they opted for a toy gun. John and Clarence were arrested in 1956 when they were 26 and 25 respectively. Their sentence was carried out at Florida State Prison and the Atlanta Penitentiary. It is believed that they may have first met Frank Morris during their time at one of these prisons. After a number of failed escape attempts, the brothers, like Frank, were sentenced to be relocated to Alcatraz. John was transferred in late 1960, and Clarence followed shortly after in early 1961. The brothers' cells were right next to each other and Frank Morris was in their cell block. If they did all know each other prior to meeting in Alcatraz, that may explain why these three men came together to plan what would become the most famous prison escape in American history. When Alcatraz first opened, prisoners were kept under strict regiments. By 1960, however, many of these protocols had been slightly relaxed. Prisoners were allowed to be more social, Time was allocated for inmates to play music or listen to the radio. Historically, inmates were strictly forbidden from speaking to one another whenever they were outside their cells, but by 1960, discourse was more freely allowed. Because of the more lenient policies by December of 1961, John and Clarence Anglin, Frank Morris, and Alan West, the inmate whose cell was adjacent to Frank, we're setting into motion a plan to get them out. How do you break out of an unbreakable prison? 
How do you get past iron bars and concrete walls, barbed wire fences, armed guards, and the freezing waters? Morris, West, and the Anglins certainly weren't lacking for cautionary tales as they put together their plan. By 1961, there had been 12 documented escape attempts at the prison. None were successful. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to Gone. In December of 1961, Frank Morris, Alan West, and John and Clarence Anglin had begun plotting their breakout from the notorious Alcatraz prison. However, they were not the first inmates with the idea of escaping the inescapable. In 1936, Joseph Bowers made the first attempt to escape Alcatraz. While working incinerator duty, a job that required inmates to work outside the main prison complex under guard, Bowers made a break for the outer fence. He was shot while climbing and died shortly after due to the trauma from the fall. A year later, in 1937, Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe got out of the prison building after filing through the window bars in the prison's shop. The two men attempted to swim to shore and were never heard from again. Officials state with certainty that they both died and their bodies were washed out to sea. In 1938, Tom Limerick James Lucas and Rufus Franklin killed a guard with a hammer. They made it to the roof where Limerick and Franklin were both gunned down. Franklin survived his injuries, but was recaptured along with Lucas. They both received life sentences. In 1939, five men, Will Martin, Arthur Baker, Dale Stamphill, Rufus McCain, and Henry Young escaped from The Hole, Alcatraz's D-block, which was considered the most secure block in the prison. The men made it to the island shore. There, they were cornered by guards. Martin, Young, McCain, and Stamphill were captured. Barker was shot and killed when he refused to surrender. It was two more years before the next escape attempt. In 1941, Joe Kretzer, Sam Shockley, Arnold Kyle, and Lloyd Barkdahl overpowered some guards and took them hostage. The inmates surrendered peacefully after the hostage guards convinced them that they couldn't escape. Later in 1941, John Bayless managed to make it to the shore where he attempted to swim to the mainland. He turned back once he realized he wouldn't survive the cold water of the San Francisco Bay. In 1943, James Borman, Floyd Hamilton, Fred Hunter, and Harold Brest took two guards hostage and escaped. Guards pursued them into the water where they recaptured Brest and Hunter. Borman was shot while he was swimming. His body sank into the ocean before it could be recovered. Hamilton was presumed drowned until he was found alive in a small cave on the shore of Alcatraz. In 1943, Ted Walters made a break for the shore while working in the laundry building. Guards caught up to him before he could make it to the water. One of the more notable attempts occurred in 1945. John Giles was assigned to the island's loading dock, where he loaded and unloaded army laundry that was sent to Alcatraz to be cleaned by the inmates. He stole an army uniform and boarded the army ferry, thinking he had gotten away. However, guards noticed he was missing before the boat reached Angel Island, 
and Giles was apprehended when the boat docked. Before the 1962 escape, the most famous escape attempt had occurred in 1946 during what is now known as the Battle of Alcatraz. Six inmates, Bernard Coy, Joe Kretzer, Marvin Hubbard, Sam Shockley, Moran Thompson, and Clarence Carnes overpowered prison staff and made it into the weapons room where they were able to arm themselves. This resulted in a bloody shootout that only ended when U.S. Marines stormed the island and took back the prison. All in all, the Battle of Alcatraz resulted in five deaths, including two guards who were murdered. Coy, Kretzer, and Hubbard were also killed in the firefight. After the Battle of Alcatraz, Shockley and Thompson were executed for their part in the plot. Carnes was given a life sentence, security around the prison was tightened, and there was no recorded escape attempt from Alcatraz for 10 years. Floyd Wilson was the first man to attempt to escape after the Battle of Alcatraz. In 1956, he snuck away from the dock where he was on loading duty. He was found several hours later on the shoreline. The last escape attempt to occur before Frank and the Anglin brothers was in 1958. Aaron Burgett and Clyde Johnson knocked out a guard and escaped from the area where they were on garbage detail. They made it into the water where Johnson was quickly captured. An intensive search failed to locate Burgett until his body was found floating in the bay two weeks later. Now, if you're Frank Morris, you may look at these numerous failed attempts and see a dozen reasons not to try and escape. Or you might see a dozen examples of what not to do when plotting your own escape. Assuming that Frank was aware of the history of failed escape attempts, there are three things he could have surmised from them. One, making a break for the water was a sure way to get shot. If he was going to get out clean, he would need to be sneaky and trick the guards into thinking he was still in his cell. Two, hurting or killing guards would more likely result in him and his co-conspirators being killed or executed than a successful escape. As we've said, neither Morris nor the Anglins fit the profile of violent criminals. They were strictly thieves, and in the case of the Anglins, they actually went out of their way to avoid hurting anyone. Maybe they truly were against using violence. Or maybe they knew from the start that a successful plan couldn't rely on the use of violence or force. The final thing Frank might have noticed was that all attempts to swim failed. If they were going to get off the island, they'd need a boat or a raft. Frank, Alan, John, and Clarence began their plan at least six months in advance of their actual escape attempt. In order to escape, the first step would be to get out of their cells at night after lights out. To achieve this, the men spent months filing away at the ventilation duct openings in their cells. Using a handful of tools, including stolen silverware and saw blades found in the prison workshop, the men slowly, meticulously picked away at the grates covering the ducts until they were each able to pry the gate away and expose the open duct. From there, they used their makeshift tools to pick away at the walls of the ducts, widening them until eventually they could crawl through. By 1960, Prisoners were allowed an hour or two in the evening to play music. 
Morris had an accordion he was known to play often. At night, he would play to cover up the sounds of his comrades chiseling away. Every night, the men would work on their respective tunnels to freedom. Every day, they would cover up their work with cardboard, cement, paint, anything they could inconspicuously steal from the prison facilities. The ducts in this particular cell block led into a seldom-used utility corridor that was not part of the regular nightly patrol. Once each man had managed to widen their cell air ducts enough to get out, the next part of the plan began. From the utility corridor behind their cells, the men were able to climb on top of their cell block. This became the site of a makeshift workshop. It was here that the quartet of prisoners worked on the next phase of their plan. While getting out of the cells was no small task, it was only the first step of a long, complicated process of actually escaping. The men were smart enough to know that their chances of pulling off such a daring escape were non-existent if they attempted to swim from Alcatraz to the nearby shore, so they opted not to swim. Instead, they built a raft. From the hidden safety of their workshop, the men compiled over 50 raincoats which they carefully stitched together and sealed by melting the rubber from the heat of a nearby steam vent. Using a concertina, an accordion-like device, they were able to inflate their raft. They found scraps of wood and discarded screws which they used to make paddles. The plan was coming together. The final step of preparation was to ensure that they had a decent enough head start before the prison staff realized they were missing. To that end, the men gathered soap, toothpaste, and toilet paper to make a substance that would act like paper mache. With that material, plus some hair stolen off the floor of the prison barber, they were each able to make dummy replica heads, which would hopefully serve to convince the guards that they were safely in their cells. With the preparation done, it came time to act. On the night of June 11, 1962, they instigated their plan. They almost immediately ran into a problem. In the weeks leading up to the escape, Alan West had been using cement to cover up the cracks around his vent duct opening. Unlucky for West, it seemed that the cement had hardened in the hours before the escape, meaning that when it came time to move, he was unable to remove the grate from his cell's vent duct. While the other men went ahead, Alan was stuck trying to reopen his own escape duct. For Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, however, it was now or never. The three men situated their dummy heads on the beds in their cells, climbed through the vent ducts, and retrieved the rafts from their workshop. They climbed up the ventilation shaft from the service corridor and reached the top of their cell block. The guard report from the night of the escape states that the guards heard one loud crash coming from the roof. However, when they heard no other sounds, they made the choice to not investigate further. Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin snuck under the cover of darkness to reach the north shoreline of the island. At around this time, Alan West had managed to pry open the grate of the vent duct to his cell. He crawled through after his comrades, but once he reached the roof, he realized he would never catch up before they set off on the raft. 
Rather than strike out on his own and attempt to swim away from Alcatraz, Alan West simply went back to his cell and went to sleep, knowing that in the morning, he would be called to answer for his three missing friends. The northeast shore of Alcatraz was a blind spot for the guard towers. There, Frank and the Anglin brothers inflated their raft with their stolen concertina. Later, investigators would guess that it was around 10 o'clock p.m. that the three men set off on their raft made of raincoats and into the waters of freedom. As far as the official story is concerned, they were never heard from again after this moment. Back at the prison, all was quiet. The dummy heads had worked. Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers were not discovered to be missing until the next morning, when none of them stood up for morning reveille. Alan West was quickly brought in for questioning. His account of the escape plan is the basis for much of what we know today about how Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers pulled off the escape. For his cooperation with the investigation, he was not punished for his part in the escape. The jailbreak prompted a search that coordinated a number of military and law enforcement agencies over a 10-day period. Three days after the escape, the Coast Guard found a plank of wood that is suspected to have been a makeshift paddle used by the inmates. Nearby, also in the water, Coast Guard searches found a plastic bag. The bag contained names, addresses, and photos of John and Clarence's friends and relatives. On June 21, 1962, ten days after the three men vanished from Alcatraz Island, law enforcement officers found the remnants of raincoat-like material on Angel Island. It's commonly believed that this was all that was left of the raft that the men used to make their escape. In his account, Alan West stated that the plan was to sail the raft to Angel Island. There, the men would rest and recover their strength before setting out for the mainland. While the raft remnants indicate that the escapees may have made it to Angel Island, there's no evidence to show where they might have gone after that, if they made it to the mainland at all. Alan West said that the plan was for the men to steal a car once they reached the mainland. From there, they'd rob a clothing store for dry clothes and make their escape. Law enforcement found no reports of stolen cars or burgled clothing stores in the area where the men would have landed on the night they escaped or in the days after. It's up for debate whether the 1962 escape from Alcatraz can count against the prison's perfect record to stopping escape attempts. On one hand, they were never found, meaning they could have died in the attempt to escape and thus not really escaped. The San Francisco Bay is massive and deep, and finding a body is an arduous task. The nature of the currents pushes toward the ocean, so anything, or anyone, that perishes in the bay is more likely to be swept out into the open ocean. But, on the other hand, they were never found, meaning they may have actually pulled it off. One thing is for sure. The trio of prisoners was missing and the hunt to find them would span decades and unearth an array of shocking and controversial evidence. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to Gone. 
The potential success of escapees Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin wouldn't haunt the prison for long. In 1963, Alcatraz was closed due to the heightened cost of keeping prisoners there. It would later become a tourist attraction. In 1979, 17 years after they vanished, Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin were declared officially dead by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI concluded that the men must have died from hypothermia in the sub-60 degrees waters while trying to reach Angel Island, and their bodies were washed out to sea. The investigation was officially closed. The U.S. Marshals Service, however, maintains an open investigation into the search for Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin. According to one marshal asked about the case in 2009, the marshals don't give up looking for people when there's an active warrant. The FBI's claim that Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin must have died in the water during their escape was based more on a lack of evidence than any substantial proof. But what's the likelihood that the men's bodies were lost to the ocean, as the Bureau claims? Alcatraz was attractive as a site for a maximum security prison because it was on an island in the middle of the cold waters of the northern Pacific Ocean. Weather reports on June 11, 1962, indicate that the water around Alcatraz was 55 degrees Fahrenheit on the night Morris and the Anglin brothers made their escape. The human body can generally survive for up to an hour in water that cold, but that statistic doesn't take into account the energy that the body might use up trying to swim or paddle against a strong current. Morris likely knew this, which was why he and the others constructed the raft. The raft should have helped them get further across the bay than if they had swum, but the raft may not have survived the trip. During the search for Morris and the Anglin brothers, law enforcement found only remnants of what seemed to be the raincoats used to make the raft. If the raft had come apart during the swim, then the men might have been left in the water, disoriented and unable to make the rest of the journey by swimming. Lastly, one shouldn't forget that the San Francisco Bay is known to be a local habitat for great white sharks. Maybe the raft didn't come apart on its own, Maybe it was torn apart. A shark might have eaten the men's remains if they drowned in the bay. Or it may have been what killed them. These are just some of the many troubles the three men would have faced when they crossed the bay. Though that isn't to say that they couldn't have done it. Public interest in the case resurged around 2012, the 50th anniversary of the escape, and caused new evidence to come to light. In 2014, a team of scientists crafted a 3D model meant to replicate the tides and currents of the San Francisco Bay in 1962. While the data suggests that the current on that night would have almost certainly pushed a raft of three men out into the ocean, the team discovered that there was a small window between midnight and 1 a.m. when the tides would have been calm enough that the raft could have made it to shore. However, they emphasized that this was a small window. If they set off in the water before or after that period of time, their chances of success were severely less. The current estimate is that the men set out from Alcatraz at around 10 p.m. that night, though of course this time is merely guesswork at best. According to the model, 
This would have set them on a course to a current that almost certainly would have pushed them out to the open ocean. But if that estimate is wrong and the men left later, there might be a chance that the water conditions were calm enough to allow them to make it. These are the factors, combined with a 17-year search and no leads, that led the FBI to declare all three men dead and the case closed. The absence of any substantial proof that the men made it to shore that night is a fairly concrete indication that they didn't survive the trek across the water. This is the official story from the government, and it has been thus for nearly 40 years. But what about that second possibility? What if at least one of the men actually successfully escaped from Alcatraz? We've discussed the factors that indicate the men may have died attempting to cross the water. But what are the chances they survived? Though the water of the San Francisco Bay presents a grueling challenge for swimmers, it's certainly not impossible to swim the one and a half miles between Alcatraz and Angel Island, or between Alcatraz and the shore of San Francisco. In fact, this very case is the inspiration for the Escape from Alcatraz triathlon that occurs every summer in San Francisco. Since 1981, athletes have kicked off the triathlon by swimming from a ferry anchored near Alcatraz Island to the mainland shore. That's hundreds of people successfully making that swim every single year. Now, Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers didn't have the benefit of modern wetsuits to help keep them warm. But it's still important to note that the actual swim is clearly something that can be achieved. We also know that Morris and the Anglins used spare raincoats to make life vests for themselves. These could have helped them stay afloat if the raft truly went down while they were crossing the ocean. One final thing to consider is that both John and Clarence Anglin were known to be exceptionally strong swimmers. In interviews that followed the escape, the Anglin brothers' sibling expressed how the two would often swim across Lake Michigan in winter, when the water temperature would average in the low 40s Fahrenheit. So they would have been used to conditions like the ones they were in on the night of June 11th. The show Mythbusters even took a crack at determining the likelihood of Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers' escape plan working. They crafted a raft using the same materials that the inmates would have used and found that it was plausible that three men of that weight could have successfully made it to shore in such a raft. In the absence of evidence of their death or current whereabouts, we can only speculate what really happened that night. But let's say they did make it. What happened then? After the FBI ended its investigation in 1979, the manhunt was officially handed to the U.S. Marshals Service, who, as we've said, have continued the search to this day. In the 39 years since the FBI declared that all three men must have died in the water, a number of vague and sometimes conflicting pieces of evidence have surfaced that indicate at least one of the escapees actually did survive the breakout. In 1993, America's Most Wanted interviewed Thomas Kent, a former inmate of Alcatraz who claimed to have new information. Kent said that he had been an integral part of planning for the escape. He only didn't participate because, by his own admission, he couldn't swim. According to Kent, Alan West had lied about the plan to steal a car and clothes once the escapees made it to the mainland. In reality, 
Clarence Anglin's girlfriend was to meet the men on the shore, where she would take them to Mexico. It would explain why there were no reports of stolen cars or burglaries in the area that night. While some authorities have indicated that Kent's new account of the escape helped law enforcement in their decades-long search for Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, others have drawn attention to Kent's own credibility. Authorities point to Kent's payoff as a potential indicator that his account was not entirely accurate. Still, whether or not Kent was telling the whole truth, his story falls in line with a series of statements made over the past 20 years that further point to the likelihood that the men might be alive. In 2011, an 89-year-old man named Bud Morris claimed to be Frank Morris's cousin on a local news station. Bud told news reporters that he had visited Frank a number of times at Alcatraz and had even brought envelopes of cash with which to bribe guards. Bud Morris also admitted to meeting with Frank Morris in San Diego after the escape. Bud's daughter, who was eight years old at the time of the San Diego meeting, appeared in the same interview and stated that her father had introduced her to a man named Uncle Frank. Bud Morris offered no information beyond that, such as the names of the guards he had bribed, and thus there was fairly little that law enforcement or journalists could do to verify his or his daughter's statements. In 2012, on the 50th anniversary of the escape, Marie Anglin Widener and Merle Anglin Taylor sisters to John and Clarence Anglin, stated at a news conference that they were convinced their brothers were still alive. Their evidence was a postcard they claimed to have received on Christmas in 1962. It read, To Mother, from John, Merry Christmas. The reveal of the Christmas card prompted a deeper look at the mail that the Anglin family claimed to have received from Clarence or John. In a documentary commissioned by the History Channel, journalists examined other letters and cards that John and Clarence's siblings claimed to have received from their brothers. While the handwriting was confirmed to be that of John and Clarence, none of the letters had any form of postmarking, making it impossible to determine when these letters were actually sent. The family also produced a photograph taken in 1975. They claimed it was of John and Clarence. In 1992, a man named Frank Brizzy, who claimed to know John and Clarence, approached the Anglin family. He said he'd encountered the brothers alive and well in Brazil in 1975 and had taken the picture as proof. The image, now blurry and faded, shows two men with long hair, both wearing sunglasses. While they look like they could be brothers, it's hard to compare this picture to the black and white mug shots of the Anglins, which remain the last confirmed pictures of them. Law enforcement response to the photo was mixed. Some saw it as a legitimate lead and the closest thing anyone had to concrete proof that the Anglin brothers were alive. Others were not so sure, based on the source. Brizzy died in 1993, so he was not available for questioning when his photograph became known to law enforcement in 2015. But his widow, who's still alive, claims he was a con man and it's likely he never actually met the Anglin brothers. Forensic experts working with the Marshal Service examined the photograph. They were able to determine that the photo was in fact taken in 1975. 
However, while they acknowledged that the men in the photo could be the Anglins, the age of the picture and lack of detail in the composition make it impossible to know for sure. But what are the chances that the brothers were in South America? In 2015, Ken Widener, John and Clarence's nephew, told reporters that Robert Anglin, John and Clarence's brother, had in fact been in touch with both of them up to 1987. Robert Anglin died in 2010, so once again, it's impossible to confirm this from the direct source. Widener's account is that Robert told his relatives on his deathbed that as far as he knew, John and Clarence were still alive in Brazil. Robert claimed both brothers had families in the country, which would protect them from extradition if they were ever discovered by the FBI. However, the same newspaper that interviewed Widener about Robert Anglin's claim was able to confirm that as early as 1965, the FBI was aware of the possibility that the brothers had escaped to Brazil with Frank Morris. This was based on an anonymous tip. Agents who searched for them at the time found no proof that the fugitives were there. The sudden resurgence of interest in the case seems a bit odd, but we could chalk it up to a number of things. If they're still alive today, Frank Morris would be 91, John Anglin would be 88, and Clarence Anglin would be 87. For the brothers, maybe their family wants one last chance to see them. Or in the case of Bud Morris, it could be that these friends and family no longer have fear of prosecution for withholding what, at the time, would have been substantial evidence. Maybe, just maybe, there's something left to be investigated. You'd be right on that count. Just this year, the FBI revealed the existence of a letter received in 2013, written by a man claiming to be John Anglin. The letter was received by the San Francisco Police Department and sent from an unknown source. It reads, quote, My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. Could this really be him? Well, the FBI seemed to think so. With the letter made public, the FBI also revealed that they were forced to reopen their investigation. After 34 years, the FBI is once again looking for the Anglin brothers. The letter reports that Frank Morris died in 2008. Clarence Anglin also passed away in 2011. The writer offers law enforcement a deal. If the FBI announces on television their promise to John Anglin that he will only serve one year in prison and receive medical attention, then he'll turn himself in. As of yet, the FBI has not yet conceded to Anglin's demands. So could it really be him? Handwriting experts compared the letter to known handwriting samples of all three fugitives. The results were inconclusive. It could be John Anglin, alive, if not well, after all these years. But this seems just as likely as every other possibility we've considered. There's always a chance this story could have an exciting conclusion. If John Anglin is still alive, maybe that ongoing manhunt that the U.S. Marshals have run since 1979 could finally locate him and bring him in. We think this story is the right one. 
Frank, John, and Clarence were able to row their way to safety and escape across the border to Mexico and eventually Brazil. There are too many witnesses who have claimed to see the three men over the years, enough that it's impossible to write them off as blowhards. The rubber remains on the shores of Angel Island suggest that the raft at least got the men there. Then, it's easy to imagine Morris and the expert swimming Anglin brothers were able to make their way to shore. Experienced as they were with being recaptured after their previous escape attempts, the men would have known that laying low was their only chance to remain free. And thus, nothing was heard from the trio for over 30 years. Regardless of whether they did succeed or they died being swept out to sea, in a way, Frank Morris's master plan worked. He and the Clarence brothers vanished without a trace. And to this day, they're simply gone. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you like the show, you can subscribe for more episodes on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>